Well, grab your Bible, if you don't already have it out, and turn to Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah, and uh, that is starting on page 530 of the hardback Bible. And we're going to be in, verse, in chapter 17 and 18. We're going to knock out two chapters like we did last week. And uh, the, the title I have this morning is Discreet Deliverance, and that will make a whole lot of sense by the end of this. Uh, but let me start with uh, kind of a different idea, a different topic that I think is helpful for us here. Uh, I know that whenever we get to portions of Scripture, sections of Scripture that seem laborious to us because of maybe genealogies, because everybody loves those, or city names, or just a whole bunch of names, or how to build something, or land distributions, or the law, or oracles against nations that are ancient and extinct, we seem to not get really excited about that, but we seem to have a tendency to do what? We skip over those things or skim through them quickly and say, oh, okay, that's nice, and we move on with our Bible reading, we move on with our study, and why do we do such a thing? Well, I think part of the reason is that we want our Bible study, we want our Bible reading to be filled with quick-hitting thoughts that apply directly to our life, where we can easily understand and then apply that understanding to our life, such as maybe Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, where Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So that's pretty easy for us to kind of take that, apply that, use that right into our life. It's pretty straightforward, and and we like those kinds of verses. We like those kinds of teachings. It's really simple. But what do you do whenever you come across passages like Isaiah 15 and 16, like last week? What, What do you do in your reading time? What is your response to a text like that? Do you seem to skip through it until you kind of get to the good parts of Isaiah? Maybe that's what you're thinking. Well, we're kind of in this laborious part of Isaiah right now, and when are we going to get to the good parts, like Isaiah 53 or something? Well, last week, Jeremy led us through those two chapters. He helped us see what was there. He helped us unpack the truth that was hidden in it. And if you were to ask Jeremy, he would tell you that last week his studying for that message was one of the most difficult he's ever had to do for those, those two chapters. And I think what Jeremy did last week was a really good job of staying true to the text, of helping us also draw out the truth that is there, and the truth that we needed to hear and we need to apply. And most of the time here at First Baptist Church, in the sermons that we preach, they are expositional sermons, which means that they are aiming at allowing the text to give us the meaning and the direction for the sermon. We preach through books of the Bible because the Bible says this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when we preach through books of the Bible like Isaiah that are long, that are laborious, that are difficult even to understand or to apply, we're acting out our belief in 2 Timothy 3. When we are digging through a book of the Bible together corporately as we're doing right now as a church, you are learning to do something. Whether you realize it or not, you are learning something. This is more of a a catching instead of a a being told something. 
you're learning to obey the truth of 2 Timothy 3, and, and you are learning how to feed yourself. This is what's happening, whether you realize it or not. Now, parents, isn't it a wonderful experience when your children learn to feed themselves? If you have small children, or recently those children have graduated to a place where they can actually take the fork and put it in their own mouth, this is a great day. This is an amazing day because you are not now required to stand over them constantly feeding them off of your own plate. That's nice, isn't it, mom and dad? When you can go to a restaurant and eat your own food, and they can eat their own food. Isn't it also a great day whenever you don't have to cut their food up for them all the time? They can actually use the knife. They can use the fork to cut the food and feed themselves. This is a great day because I don't have to expel more energy, but also because of the fact that those children are growing up. They are actually maturing like they should. This is a good and right thing. And some of you have grown to the point where you can cut your own food and you can feed your own face. This is, this is good. This is a good thing, spiritually speaking. I mean, I would assume probably most of you adults could do that anyways. <sighs> some of you struggle. Maybe then we'll pray. Pray that the Lord will help you. Uh, some of you are, are growing and you're just now learning to, to do that, right? You're, you're, you're getting there. You're, you just need a little bit of help. And, and some of you are still needing others to cut the food for you to use that fork for you, help you with that. Now, these are natural things. Natural progressions, these are expected stages of growth. These are okay stages. These are good. But what should not be seen as natural or as expected is someone who says that they've been a Christian most of their life, but they are unable and unwilling to feed themselves. That should cause us to ask some questions. It should cause you to ask some questions of yourself. Now, if you walked into a restaurant and you saw a 45-year-old man sitting at a table with a bib on, drinking out of a baby bottle, you would probably think maybe one of two things. Maybe one, it's a prank that he lost a bet somehow, and this is why he's doing this, or there's something severely and tragically wrong so when we preach through the Scriptures, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, we are aiming at not only feeding you, but teaching you to feed yourself. Demonstrating what it looks like to study a text, to discover the truth in that text, and for then you to apply that to your life. So with that lengthy introduction about expositional preaching and exegesis of a text, Let's get into the text that we have in front of us, Isaiah 17 and 18. This is the text that God has provided for us, has preserved for us, and today we will look at these two chapters. Now, we are in a section of Isaiah that Jeremy said last week seems to be on the surface a repetition of sorts from 13 really through 23, that it seems to be just repeating itself, but there is truly a repetition that's happening, but there's a reason for the repetition. And inside of the repetition, there's something taking place as well. Each of those oracles, each of those prophecies for other nations and people, there's something that we can draw out of each of those. And we must dig around inside of the text and even to other books of the Bible and to history for us to discover the great treasure that God has for us here. So in chapter 17, we are given another oracle from God or a prophecy from God to Isaiah. 
And again, this is given to Isaiah for the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. So there's the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And this prophecy that's given to Judah from Isaiah, from the Lord, is about their enemies that are pressing in on them, the enemies of Syria and the northern kingdom, Israel, their cousins. Now, they are identified here in chapter 17 as Damascus and Ephraim. Damascus and Ephraim. Damascus was the capital city of Syria, so that's, that's why that is used. Ephraim is just another name that has been attached to Israel, that northern ten tribes. Now remember that Judah was in the south. They had been threatened, as we have seen through these uh, 16 chapters so far. They had been threatened by both of these two nations, by Syria, by Israel. And what was the threat? Well, those two nations were conspiring against Assyria, and Judah did not want to join their alliance. So the king of Judah at the time is Ahaz, and he decided to make an alliance with Assyria because he trusted Assyria over these two. He saw that as a better thing to do, which will not end well for him or for Judah. But he believed that this was a better option than trusting God's protection which is a reoccurring theme through Isaiah. Let's look at the first three verses that we have in Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17, verse 1. An oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora are deserted. They will be for flocks, which will lie down and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. Now the alliance that, uh, that Syria and Israel had will not be enough to ward off the doom that is coming their way by Assyria. They were attempting to protect themselves from the big bad wolf of Assyria by teaming up together and they were trying to strong-arm Judah into joining their uh, alliance, and they're threatening to invade, and, and they're promising to invade if Judah doesn't do something to join them. But what they should have been more worried about than Assyria was who they were actually against, and they were against the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, as what that means. And in these verses, we're told that the Lord is going to put an end to the false security that these two nations had. They believed that together they were strong, they were mighty, they could defend off whoever they needed to, and their attempt at securing what they had, these things were all in vain because they had forgotten who they were actually up against. It wasn't just Assyria that was the problem, it was the fact that they were against the Lord. They were against God. And how often do we have this problem? Where we have forgotten God. And since we have forgotten Him, what does this do with our enemies? Well, the enemies, they look scarier. The situation seems to be really intimidating. We then try to devise some sort of way to defeat the enemy. And, and because of this, we've We've really forgotten about God and what God can do. We've forsaken Him like Judah has done, like Israel has done, and He has become our enemy without us even realizing it. Thinking of the enemy that's, that's approaching, that's coming at us, we, we only see them as the problem, and we forget about God. We reject God in that, 
And God has now become our enemy because of that. Now with Damascus, this seems to make sense, right? With Syria, it seems to make sense that, well, they would act this way, they would think this way, they would be this kind of a people that would ignore God, that would forsake God. But what about Israel? What about Israel? Why would they be doing the same thing as a pagan nation? This idol-worshiping nation of Syria, why would they be doing the same thing? Why would they be teaming up with them? Why would they think like them, act like them? It's because they had befriended them. That's why. James speaks about this in in his fourth chapter, in verse 4, where he writes this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this is a pretty good description of what Israel had done and had been doing for several generations ever since the split of the kingdom. They were becoming friends of the world around them. And because of this, they were making themselves enemies of God. Now, John also writes about this same kind of idea out of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, where he, he writes these words, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from God, but is from the world. This is a definition that we're given of what does it mean to be friends with the world. So as James talks about that, that it creates a state of being an enemy with God, John gives definition to that. And Israel was loving what their neighbors loved. They loved what Syria loved. They were desiring the same things that their neighbors desired. They took pride in the same things that their neighbors took pride in. Essentially, they were just like their neighbors with a few different religious practices. This is called syncretism. Syncretism. Where two schools of thought get merged together. Two religious practices getting merged together. Is this true for you? Is this happening in your life? Has this happened in your life? Is there any distinction between you and your neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior? Is there any difference? I don't mean that, well, you go to a church service once a week, and this is your evidence of distinction between you and your neighbor. What I mean is about your pursuits in life. What are you pursuing? What do you desire that is different from your neighbor? Do you strive to have the same stuff as they do? Do you want your children to turn out like their children? You know, getting to, into the, the great colleges or getting that, that sports scholarship, having all the opportunities that their kids have, having all the gadgets, all the games, all the stuff that their kids have. Is there any distinction between you and your unbelieving neighbors? Or have you merged your version of Christianity with the culture's desires? Is that taking place? Is that happening? Has that happened? Now, please hear me on this point. I'm not saying that you cannot be friends with your irreligious pagan neighbors, because you should be. 
Why? Because that's what Jesus did. He was friends to sinners. He was their friend. He ate with them. But you should not think like them, act like them, or love the things they love. Your direction in life should be in complete contrast to their life. The way that they are going is in a way of darkness. You, Christian, should walk in light. Those don't go together, do they? They are in different directions. Your direction in life should be different. So invite them over for dinner. Spend time with them on the porch. Cut their grass. Take them food and and meals whenever they're sick or they're hurting. Love them the way that Jesus loved you when you were a sinner. Love them that way. But Jesus was never drawn into their practices or their attitudes, and neither should you. Israel had forsaken their God, and they had synced up with their neighbors. And because of this, they will suffer just like their neighbors. They're guilty just like their neighbors. Now look at verses 4 through 6. It says, In that day the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. Now that doesn't mean he's getting ripped, okay? That means... He's sick, dying. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain and his arm harvests the ears, and as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephraim, gleanings will be left in it. As when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bow, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. So we hear how God is going to humble both of these nations. He's going to bring them both down. He's going to strip them of their wealth and of their health. And the survivors of these two will be like just a few berries at the top of a tree after harvest time where the tree is beaten out or shaken and and all of the fruit is, is gone. They'll be thinned out so much like whenever a field is harvested, but there's just a few stalks left and that can be gleaned. So the glory of these two nations will be reduced to gleanings. There's just a little bit left. Now the picture that the Lord is painting is that the devastation to Israel and to Damascus, to Syria, is leaving a gleaning or a remnant from the whole, thus leaving room for hope. It's not complete devastation, complete destruction. There's a little bit of hope. Isn't this one of the themes of Scripture? A remnant people will be preserved by the hand of God, and from that preservation, there will be hope. The hope for the world, Jesus Christ, comes from the remnant of Judah which is who this prophecy is written to, right? This is a foreshadowing of sorts. Judah is given a picture of how God can and will preserve a people, and because of that remnant, there will be a hope of salvation. This is going to be really good news for them as they read this again after things go down through history, and they read back and go, okay, we've been taken captive, we've been taken away out of our land, but there's hope. God promises that there's hope. Because there's a remnant. 
Look at the next two verses, 7 and 8. In that day man will look to his Maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, the works of his hands, and he will not look on what his fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. Now maybe you notice something strange in verse 7. Maybe not. Let me help you here. Maybe you notice something because this is written to Judah, but about Syria and Israel, but the word that is used here is man. In that day, man will look to his maker. Why is this used and not one of the two nations or both of the nations? Why are they not mentioned here? Well, the word in Hebrew is ha-adam, which is translated mankind, which is what's used here. So this is a universal word and not a specific word to the survivors of Syria or Israel. Why is this? This is a general reference to people or humanity. Why not these two? Isn't this who he's talking about? Again, don't forget the context of this. Isaiah writing to Judah, God's chosen people. But here, the Lord is saying that there will be a universal or across-all-mankind acknowledgement of who is the Maker of all things. Who is going to be the one that will be worshipped by all? There's only one. It's the only Holy One. The chosen people of God will include more than just a certain bloodline, just a certain group. It will be out of all mankind, which leads us to a contrast that happens in 7 and 8 between these two. Those who, who look to the Maker will worship Him, and those who have been looking at the created things to worship, they will be judged. One group worshiping the one and only holy God, the other group looking at the created things and worshiping that. This is still true into the New Testament. There are only two groups of people. Those that worship the one true God and those that worship false gods. Handmade things will not be able to do anything against the maker of all things. This is, this is the contrast here. The maker of all things will do away with these created things. And the judgment that is coming against both of these two nations is connected to their idolatry. And God acts the same way toward those who worship idols. Whether that be idols that are on your mantle or idols that are in your mind or in your heart, God will act the same way. He will judge those who worship idols. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. If you read that chapter, you see he, he identifies the great failure to recognize the Creator of all things and then worship the created thing. This is the, the, the terrible transaction that man makes on a daily basis. We trade the eternal for the temporal. And Judah, Judah was supposed to learn. They were supposed to learn from their cousin's mistake, Israel. As this chapter is being written, they are to learn, hey, don't do that. Don't, don't sync up with your neighbor like that. But they didn't listen. And King Ahaz didn't listen either. Ahaz actually went to Damascus at one point, the capital city of Syria. He, he went to Damascus. We see this in 2 Kings, if you want to read there. And he goes to Damascus. He sees the pagan altars of incense in Damascus. 
He then sends plans back to Judah, to Jerusalem, to have an exact replica of that altar made and then placed in the temple. And then this is done before he even returns. And whenever he does return, he brings an offering himself and places it on this altar. Instead of King Ahaz rejecting idolatry, what does he do? He embraces it. He acts just like the people of Syria. Ahaz and Judah, they're given this oracle as a warning of what happens when syncretism takes place, but they didn't listen. They didn't listen. Look at the last verses here, 9 through 14. In that day, their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make their blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations. They roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but He will rebuke them. And they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold, terror. Before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. What had Israel done? Verse 10. What did they do? They had forgotten the God of their salvation. The God that had brought them into the promised land, the God that had preserved them in that land, they had abandoned Him. They had abandoned Him as their rock, as a refuge, and they went seeking to find some other source of protection, some other source of life, which Isaiah writes will only end in a quick destruction, as verse 14 says, before morning. It will be quick. The reference to the Lord being their rock does not mean that God is passive or immobile, as if He, he wanted to do something for them, but He was inert and He couldn't do something. The rock reference for them would be a reminder. A reminder of the rock out of Exodus 17 where the rock poured forth life-giving water for them. The Lord, He is a dependable provider of life and He is dependable for protection. This is what that means. He is the rock and the refuge. And in these verses, there's also a lesson about trusting in the immediate results of success. If you look at verses 10 and 11, God is warning them about looking at the quick fix or the production of their idolatry or their allegiances that they're making. Immediate results do not indicate real success or real fix. And you probably know this just from your own life experience. It's quite possible that you are addicted to something. Maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's porn, maybe it's entertainment, maybe it's drama, maybe it's attention, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's your own family. 
And you keep running back to those things, hoping to get a fix that you think you need, but every time that you've run back to that thing, your craving grows, your consumption grows, and every time you're left feeling empty and more empty. The reason why is that the immediate fix is no fix at all. People are impatient, right? Like you've been to Walmart, you know. You've driven a car, you know. People are impatient. They don't want to wait, nor do they want to do the hard work that it takes to see the good results. They just want results. We live in a microwave age, don't we? We want it all and we want it now. Right now. We do this with our bodies, we do this with our finances, we do this with our stuff. We want instant success and instant results. This is what we want. Why did the people of Israel make a golden calf in the wilderness? If you read that story, you you find there's probably a couple of reasons, but one of those reasons is that they were impatient with God. They were impatient with Moses. And their impatience led to their forsaking of God. Just maybe this is your problem with God, thinking that His delayed response to the results that you think you need, that you desire, that you you should have, has led you to a place where you've rejected Him, you've forgotten Him, you've walked away from Him. So what do you do? What do you do whenever you, you, you become impatient with God? You run back to these things. You run back to the addictions or to the strategies that maybe others have done who do not fear the Lord or hope in the Lord. And in that, you think you're going to find some sort of satisfaction or result that you deserve. The fix you find fixes nothing but only creates a worse scenario because now you're even further away from the Creator or the Maker of all things. You've distanced yourself even more from Him than before. In 732 B.C., Damascus falls to Assyria. This city that's prophesied here in chapter 17, they fall just like what was predicted. It is thought that this prophecy is given to Judah two years before that happens. Israel in the north, they will suffer the same fate at the hands of the Assyrians because of their syncretism, and if Judah will not repent, Isaiah writing to Judah, if they will not repent of their similar practices of syncretism and idolatry, they too will suffer the same judgment. And these judgments from God that we've been studying through Isaiah so far, here's what they should be for us. Here's what they should have been for Judah. They should be a reminder to us of how repulsive sin is to a holy God. How repulsive is sin to a holy God? Here's your example. What was their sin? It was the subtlety of idolatry. The slipping and sliding into syncretism of how the world thinks and feels and acts towards sin. 
Here's the question for you. What are your feelings towards sin? How do you feel toward your sin? Does sin offend you? Does it offend you? Is it repulsive to you? Now, maybe somebody else's sin does, right? Like, you're quick to jump on that one. You're like, oh, man, let me tell you about these people. Let me tell you about this guy that I know. Let me tell you how repulsive he is and all the sin that he creates and he does. And maybe you're quick to do that and you think, yeah, their sin, it just makes me sick. You're right, Pastor. It offends me and I hate it. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you. Does your sin sicken you? And if it doesn't, why not? Because it sickens God. He hates it. Here's our example of how much he hates it. What is your attitude towards sin? Well, I want to land the plane of 17 and take off into the plane of 18 here. And I want us to look at the next chapter of Isaiah as we conclude our time this morning. There's only seven verses here in chapter 18. I want to read this in its entirety. And then we'll talk through it here. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. All the land of whirling wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, all you inhabitants of the earth, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look, when a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks, and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from all the people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. This chapter is an amazing prophecy about God's plan of salvation for the people of Cush. As we today know them as the land of Ethiopia. Cush would be about 1,500 miles away from Judah. 1,500 miles away. And these people of Cush, they look very different than the people of Judah, as they're described in verses 2 and 7 as tall and smooth. And I don't know if this is then a reference also to the people of Judah being short and rough. I, maybe that, I don't know. Maybe that's not what is, is the application here. I don't know. Um, but don't we live in an amazing, beautiful world full of diversity and color? Isn't it amazing? Isn't the human race amazing how our DNA can produce a variety of height, of skin color, of hair type, of hair color, of eye color, of nose shapes and sizes? 
And on and on we can go describing how, how DNA works these things out. As we study the Scriptures, we learn that every person on earth, even those that are still in the womb, are made in the image of God. They're image bearers of God. Every nation and people across the globe, they have originated from one man, Adam. And by the way, Adam means man. So all of the varieties that we see today is because of the genetic code that God wrote whenever he made Adam and Eve. So every person on earth, they have value, they have worth, no matter their, their color of their eyes, the color of their skin, their height, their weight, their hair color, or no hair at all. They have value because they're made in the image of God, and God delights in variety because he wrote it that way in the genetic code. He wrote it that way. When people become prideful and self-centered, they start to see the variety of God in a different light. They see it as a curse and not a blessing. They see the differences in ethnicities as a problem, but ethnicity is from God, and racism is from prideful man. Racism, by some, is being redefined and repackaged. <clears throat> so what is the definition of racism? Yeah, you could find several different definitions. This is kind of my definition of what it is. I think it is the elevation of one ethnic group over another, treating one group as superior to the other, believing that they deserve special treatment because of their ethnicity. Racism breeds even greater levels of wickedness where it leads to oppression and injustices that are tolerated inside of the culture and then praised even in the culture. Racism is nothing but a form of idolatrous self-worship as one author has said. Let me read that again. A form of idolatrous self-worship. Think about that for a while. This chapter shows us that God takes delight in people from all over the earth, from every ethnic background. And this is His promise about His elect or His chosen people that they will be from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as Revelation 7 has promised. We're given a snapshot here in this chapter of what the global harvest of God will look like when He gathers His people from one man, all the nations of the earth have come, Adam. And by one man, Jesus Christ, will all the nations be represented in heaven. And apart from Christ, they won't be there. In this chapter, God promises to, to bring a pruning to Assyria. This is what's being said here in these verses 5 and 6. There, there's a pruning that's coming to Assyria. It will, it will happen before they get to the country of Cush, which is what God does. 185,000 Assyrian troops are slaughtered by God. The angel of the Lord comes and kills them before they could ever make their way toward Cush. And what does this teach us about God? It teaches us that He is in absolute control of nations, of peoples, and events. Notice verse 4. 
Look at what it says there. For thus says the Lord, for thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Now Syria, Israel, Judah, and even Cush, all four of those, they are disturbed by the threat of Assyria. They are troubled by the, the threat of Assyria coming in and wiping everybody out, taking people into captivity. They're frightened. They're agitated by the movements of Assyria. But what does God say in response to their movements? Verse 4, I will quietly look. Now on the surface of that, it's like, what? Does God even care? Does He care that this is going to happen? Is God going to do anything? Is He going to act? Notice the picture that God uses. Notice the picture that we are given here of what God is doing. He says, like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. What is needed for there to be a good harvest? Now, some of you have planted your gardens, and it got cold, and you're like, oh no, right? What do you need? You need heat. And you need dew on those hot days, don't you, in the morning? These are two essential contributing factors for there to be a plentiful harvest. You need heat and you need the dew. So get this, get this, what, what is being said here. God is saying that he is going to look quietly from his dwelling, but that looking is going to be anything but passive toward the Assyrian's harvest. It is not passivity that God has. He is making it happen. The God of the Bible is not simply a watchmaker who wound up the, made the watch, wound it up, and then threw it out into eternity and just, it's going to expire at some point. The time's going to run out. The energy's going to run out. No. That belief about God is called deism. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible watches over all things, but here we are told about His watching. He watches and presides over all events. He's governing all of it. When the Lord said <clears throat> that the Assyrians will move no further, they will be no larger than this of what He has decreed, that is exactly what happened. Why? He is sovereign over all things. Because of this pruning that is promised here in 5 and 6, this pruning by God, it wasn't Israel, it wasn't Judah, it wasn't any other enemy, it was God that did it. 185,000 killed in one night. When this happens, the people of Cush will do what? They will send gifts to Jerusalem as praise to the God who stopped the Assyrians dead in their tracks. It's during the, the reign of King Hezekiah that all of this happens. Now, there's other prophecies promised that the people of Cush will send gifts of worship to Jerusalem. This is just one of those. These are all pieces of a puzzle of God's plan of redemption to all mankind. And then we see in the book of Acts the culmination of God's plan where a man from Ethiopia comes to know who Jesus is. We read earlier out of Acts chapter 8, and in chapter 8, verse 26 through 39, we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch that is part of the, uh, the uh, royal officials. He was traveling on the road south to Jerusalem. 
or south of Jerusalem. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning home. When the Holy Spirit led Philip, one of the deacons of the early church, to this man's chariot. Philip hears this man reading none other than Isaiah. Philip joins him in his chariot. He explains the text that this man is reading that he, he doesn't understand. He, he's puzzled by it. He leads this man to faith in Jesus Christ. And after Philip baptizes the man, he then continues on to his home country. And church history tells us that this man is the start or the beginnings of the Coptic church in Ethiopia. What an amazing God we have. A God who would make a promise to stop a mighty army in the tracks. That's pretty amazing. Then make a promise that a people group 1,500 miles away would then come to worship Him for doing such a thing, would bring gifts of worship to Him, which is all what happens in Isaiah's day. But the twofold prophecy of chapter 18 shows itself again in Acts 8, where God puts two men on the same path at the same time, while one of them just so happens to be reading from one of the prophets that predicted that the Lord would receive worship from that people group. What would seem to be, to some, maybe as merely a coincidence, is actually the providence of God showing up. The Lord promised that this people group would bring gifts of worship to Him. And now in Acts 8, this man is the start of eternal gifts of worship being brought to the Lord because of his newfound faith in Jesus Christ. He's the start of that. One of the major themes in the book of Isaiah is found in these chapters that we are in the middle of, 13 through 23, which is that God is active in the history of Israel and Judah. He is active in it. And this activity is for the purpose of drawing other nations into worship of the one true God. His activity is not only with Judah or with Israel, but it is taking place amongst the peoples of the earth even Cush, all the way in the south to Cush, even those people, God is working. God is doing something. God is drawing people to worship Him. And this is why. This is why we should be about reaching the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ, just as Philip did. This is why we should be about welcoming the refugees who have been dispersed because of war and famine, this is why we should be about engaging people who do not look like us or act like us because of Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection. We can go to the nations or to our neighbors with the hope of Isaiah 17 and 18. We can proclaim to them that there is a refuge and there is a rock to depend upon and His name is the name that is above all other names. You know it. Jesus. Let me leave you with two questions to reflect on this morning. Who can you bring? Who can you bring the hope of Jesus Christ to? 
Who is that maybe you need to go to to bring that hope to them? Maybe it is a nation. Maybe it's a people group in our nation. Maybe it's just your neighbor. The other question I want you to ponder on and think through this morning and pray about, are there areas of syncretism in your life that need repented of? What was the problem of Israel? What was the problem of Judah? Their idolatry. They adopted the same practices, the same thoughts, the same desires. They synced up with another nation in, in, in their path. Are there areas that need repented of this morning in your life? Let me give you just a few moments to pray. If you, if you want to come to the front and pray, we welcome you to do that. If you want to talk to somebody about salvation or, or other questions you have spiritually or physically, we would love to have those conversations with you. You can find me or one of the other elders. We would love to have those conversations with you. Let me give you just a few moments, and I'll pray for us. We'll sing one final song and then be dismissed.